Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, November 29th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's choosing to join us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store, and if you choose to, you can type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness, And if you do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process. And it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people will do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives, and secondarily because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so, giving us a call at 563-999-3581 and pressing 1 on your phone or sending us an email. You can email me at tjh 
at mindshifters-academy.org. Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N.org. And if we get a comment or a question from you or testimonial or refutation, we will address it on the Internet show and then as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that occurred so you can listen back to the archives for the feedback or input. And as we like to say, we greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it makes it easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have here is to be a service, and that's just a whole lot easier to do when we get direct feedback from the people we're trying to be of service to. And it makes it far easier for us to hit a target if we know where the target is. The second hour today is going to be a replay. Michael and Jeannie are otherwise occupied. So we have a full hour to talk about things that came up yesterday, talk about things that are coming up for you as we do the reading in the way of mastery, to answer questions, to explore different topics, if that's something that you're so inclined to suggest. Um, we can always come back to the way of mastery on a different day when there isn't a comment or a question from someone in the audience. And as as we know, our experience is that the vast majority of those shows that have been singled out as highlight shows are shows where people just like you have called in and raised a comment or a question. And it just, it's very obvious if you look through the shows that have been singled out as highlight shows, they've been curated out by either Jeannie Rice or myself. She keeps a list of them going on the org website. And you can get access to it by clicking on the Start Here link. And I have curated out a number of shows and moved them over to the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And um, it won't take you long to figure out that most of those shows that have been selected, they've been requested by people that we separate them out or that we make give, give easy access to them. And the vast majority of them are the result of people just like you calling in and asking to do a worksheet or asking a question or giving a testimonial, etc. So, as I like to say, even if I'm going to start reading The Way of Mastery or some other book again, even if I'm in the middle of reading something, if something strikes you, even if it doesn't seem to be relevant to the immediate reading, please feel free to raise a hand if you're in the phone queue or give us a call directly at 563-999-3581 and let us know how we can be a service. Um 
um, we had a support group last night. It was uh, we were gifted with two separate testimonials from group members, and um, it's always a privilege to have a group. It's always a highlight of that privilege when group members have powerful testimonials to report about the benefits of this work in their lives. And last night we didn't have just one, we had two such testimonials. And um, it's it's a blessing. Um, we also listened to some Michael Singer part of his lecture series from the lecture series around the untethered soul. And I got a chance to work out my self-restraint because I probably had 18 or 20 different times in that of almost an hour of listening to his talking where I was moved or had the impulse to stop the recording and say, Look, this is what we just read in the Way of Mastery. Look, this is from the Lesson 1 of the Way of Mastery, or the, this is from the Promise of the Way of Mastery, or look, this is the actual process they're talking about in Lesson 3. And I think it's very safe to say that Michael Singer doesn't even know about the Way of Mastery, and that the work he's done is based on many would call um, deep spiritual teaching, some would call it Hindu, some would call it Buddhist, some would call it um, just a a deepening understanding of um, the autobiography of a yogi and the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. And that school of thought which is just about learning to step back into observation of the flow of life and learning to actively release negativity, judgment. I hope that rings a bell because that's exactly what we're being called to in the way of mastery with the first three lessons. And He talks a lot about how the only thing that creates upset for us is the stuff that we say we can't handle. Whether that is the events in the what we call the outside world or outside of us, around us, or within our mind. And he says, the fact of the matter is, we all do handle everything. We all live through it, we all survive it, we all move on. And yet we create this mental, emotional experience that we can't handle it. And so we create the illusion of being able to run from it and separate ourselves from it. And we create our upset by either trying to cling to something that's happened or that we experience inside of ourselves and create it as special and try to keep it static without changing 
or we try to resist the flow of life and the change that is always happening and the events as they happen because we don't like them. And if if we're doing either of those things, we're either clinging or pushing away, we're in the process of creating upset for ourselves. And we will either feel it at that moment or we will feel it in the near future as the flow of life strips away our ability to either hold on to or push away the things that we say we want or that we don't want. So no one has a hand up, so I'm going to return to the Lesson 3. And we were reading in Lesson 3 yesterday, near the end of the time before Susan Bingham called in and we had this stimulating discussion, we were reading about how the title of the section is Awakening Requires Vigilance and Discipline. And in the first paragraph there, it says, I've told you many times that the world you see is nothing more than the effects of the thoughts you hold within your mind. The pictures your mind shows you are not the results of the outside world having its impact. They're simply the results of the thoughts that you value and hold on to. And then it says, therefore, awakening requires the act of vigilance and discipline. Okay, I'm ready. What's the discipline? It's the discipline to cultivate a way of living in which you observe your own thoughts. It's powerful. This is exactly what Michael Singer is talking about. Sit back in the, the seat of the observer and watch the flow of energy through your mind. The, the field of energy that we call the mind, watch the flow of energy through it. Watch the signals that come in from the sights and sounds and physical sensations from what we call the outside world, and then watch the thoughts that you generate in response to that. And then watch the physical and emotional energies that you experience as a result of the thoughts you've chosen. So the discipline that's needed is the discipline to observe your own thoughts, all of them, with every breath. Also, the discipline to listen to the words that are coming out of your own mouth. Again, with every breath, with everything you say. And the discipline to observe the feelings that you create or you evoke within your own body. With every breath, with every movement, with every moment. And the discipline to observe the reactivity that you seem to think owns you. It doesn't own you. It doesn't control you. You can make a belief up that it's making you do this or that or that you're powerless to have this or that. And yet, the actuality is you, in the first three axioms, you only experience the effects of the choices you've made 
and nothing has any impact on you except that which you give it, the meanings that you give things create the effects that you experience. And the third axiom is you need do nothing. You have the ability to choose. So awakening requires this vigilance and this discipline to observe your own thoughts, observe the words coming out of your mouth, observe the feelings that you create and experience inside your energy system that you call a body, and experience the reactivity that seems to own you, that you feel urged to respond to do this or that, and see all of these things as completely innocent and simply self-caused. Find a way to look on everything as innocent. And when next something is reflected to you by the world that seems to cause you to become angry or seems to cause you to be in judgment, stop right where you are and look with allowance and surrender upon your judgment with innocence and honesty and say, oh, I see, I'm judging someone. That's why I have this tension in my gut. That's why I have this pain in my chest. That's an interesting experience in my energy system as a result of the choices I've made. That's an interesting cloud passing through the sky of my awareness. I wonder... I wonder if I might be able to make another choice and then feel a different response. That's the offering here. Now, of course, your mind will tell you, but wait a minute, this this bad thing did happen. These things are going on out there in the world. This person stole my stereo. I've got a right to be angry. These horrible things are happening over in this country and that country and the war and the oppression and look at the poverty here and look at the the children that are getting traded on the sex market and look at the abductions that are happening and I'm justified in my anger. This book says it's okay, it's innocent and completely self-caused And you can say, I have a right to feel my anger, and you do. You can create whatever you want. You're a creator. You're in charge of that little, we call it a little hose of mind energy, and whatever you point it at, you're going to create more of. And yet this book says, but I say unto you, your anger is never justified. that negative emotion. I'm arguing for how I'm not the cause of it. And I don't have any choice but to have this negative thought. Now I'm hopelessly stuck. And this book says, I say unto you, anger is never justified. You will experience it. But the invitation here is to stop fooling yourself into believing that there's some validity to it being caused by anything other than your own choice. And the next time someone breaks into your home and takes your stereo equipment or some other idol that you love, 
Imagine how it will feel different to you if you understood that you have the power in that moment to remember that all events are neutral and that they merely provide you with another chance to choose love. There's a story in the in the book by Alan Cohen, The Course in Miracles Made Easy, where he talks about a friend of his who lived, I think it was in New York, but he lived in a city, and he was up in an apartment. And he was in his apartment one night, and he heard a noise in the bedroom. And he goes in the bedroom, and there's a burglar in his bedroom. And this is a guy who's been studying Course in Miracles. And he startled the burglar, and the burglar tries to scramble over the bed and get out the window. And Alan Cohen's friend calls to him and says, hey, 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 relax. Don't leave. Maybe I can help you. And the burglar doesn't leave, and they end up sitting down talking, and he says, what's going on in your life that you feel like you've got to steal other people's stuff? And he told them his story of woe. You know, sick wife, lost job, whatever, kids that need food, whatever it is. And the apartment owner ended up trying to comfort him, giving him some money, and sending him out the front door, telling him, give me a call if you want to talk. This is exactly what's being suggested here. So what if somebody steals my stereo equipment and they're gone when I get home and I don't have any chance to be the experience of love? Well, you'll find out later it doesn't matter that they aren't right there in front of you. You can still choose for joy and for love and for compassion in that moment rather than choosing for anger and trying to justify it. The text here goes on and says, what if you literally chose what this world of yours would say is an insane way of looking at it, but you chose to look at whatever this brother or sister of yours did is basically just a cry for help and healing. And you tried to find a way within yourself, whether it's energetically or with prayer or with sending positive loving thoughts and emotions or it's giving them some money and offering to help, that you tried to look at this person as someone who does not know how to live in the world without being of the world. In other words, you look at them as someone who's just been programmed into bitterness and resentment and a sense of lack and a sense of anger and hurt and shame and guilt, just as you have been. And that they don't know how to live in the world in a way that helps them dismantle their negative perceptions of themselves. And they don't know the truth of the capital L light, the energy of creation, the love that they are that's inside of them. And they don't recognize their great power to create whatever they want or need in a way that is not hurtful to anyone else. What if you chose to look upon them with compassion rather than reactivity? One of these came up 
in, in the support group last night and somebody was giving a testimonial, but they were still stuck on the idea that this family member has been um, upset with them or angry with them for the better part of this past year and has refused to communicate. And so our group member has, for quite a while, quite a number of months, been interpreting this as stabbing at the group member, stabbing at her with punishment, I'm going to punish you by refusing to talk to you, etc. And so we just suggested, how about since you're making up, since you can't really know what's going on in the other person's mind anyway, and you're making up a story that says they think you're bad or wrong, and they think that you should be punished and they're going to punish you and stab back at you by doing this or that. Just a story you're making up. You have no idea what's going on in that other person's mind and or what they're struggling with. So I said, as long as you're making up a story, why not make up a story that's at least neutral if not positive? Why not look at this younger person in your family and say, bless their heart, they must be struggling to reject my offers of love and compassion and reconnection. They must be afraid of facing something dark within themselves. What if I take that as a story I make up and put on the situation? Don't I feel differently when I think of them as a person just like me who's struggling to get along in the world, who doesn't know how to engage in a loving way in this moment or is afraid to or has their own fear and shame and guilt because maybe they know in our last interaction they were off the mark and they just don't feel strong enough or well-equipped enough with tools to address it directly, lovingly, with compassion, with apology, with responsibility hey, I'm making up my stories about what's going on in life. I might as well make up stories that leave me feeling better about myself and the people around me. So the text goes on here and says, this begins in simple ways. You can start to look on the world and the events around you with compassion rather than reactivity. But to set the stage, I want you to remember that time has been given to you so that you might use it constructively. And that means that when you awaken in the morning, you realize you are in school. This is not a dress rehearsal. This is the real thing. This is the life. And in this school, in your very life, you don't have to drive anywhere. You're already there. The universe is literally helping to assist you in having experiences that will bring things up for you that aren't healthy to hold in your system and bring them up for you so that you can choose to look at them differently. When you look at them differently, you thereby discover the great power within you, the great freedom within you to choose what you want to perceive and to elicit only what you want to feel. So that even if nails are being driven through your hands, you're finally liberated in the power to choose love, and therefore to overcome this world. 
So imagine, what do you think is going to be more productive for this group member? To sit with the belief that this younger family member is sitting there thinking, I'm right and and my older family member is wrong and I don't have to apologize to anybody. You think that the story about how I'm being blamed for something is going to make me feel better than a story about how we're all in this together and if a person doesn't come to me with love and respect and compassion and responsibility, it just means that they're hurting. Just sit with for yourself what it means, how it feels to you when you look at the stories you're always making up. What are you making the situation mean? This is one of two critical and powerful questions we suggest people use whenever they feel upset, tight, tense, angry, negative, anything. Take a breath, take a calming breath, slow the exhale down, and ask yourself, gee, how am I creating this experience, this emotion, this reaction? Or, alternately, or also you can ask yourself, what am I making this situation mean? And as you do that, you exercise your power, the liberty you have to choose the focus of your mind energy to create and elicit whatever feeling you want to elicit. So then it says, having said this, understand that each of your days is a blessing and a gift. If you use it from the full commitment to awakening. Having said this, understanding the power of your choice of where you focus your mind energy, please understand that every day you're alive and pulling breath through the physical energy system you call a body, it is a blessing and a gift. But only if you use it from the full commitment to awakening. Your day will be chock full of a million opportunities to discover a deeper truth. Therefore, release any thoughts you might ever have had that your life should be something other than what you've already been involved in. For remember what we spoke of earlier, here's the quote, you are literally creating everything you choose and nothing is being forced upon you. Working to turn on the microphone for area code 610, I believe it's Susan. It is again. Hi, Dr. Tim. Good stuff. I have a couple of little testimonials, too. I I gave my little talk last night off the top of my head because I just wanted to be looking at everybody. I thought it went pretty well, and... After I finished, <clears throat> the woman who was leading the group, our rector doesn't lead. The, this is a vestry meeting. So the, the rector was sitting quietly and looking quite either sad or tired or disturbed in some way. And, of course, I immediately thought, when you ask, what am I making this experience mean? I'm saying to myself, didn't like it. Didn't like it. <laughs> so anyway... The woman who was leading the meeting 
said, oh, okay, well, let's get on with the meeting. No response, nothing. Then the rector said, well, let's open this up for discussion. He was kind of muted and poker-faced. And various people spoke about it. One young man who I like a lot, he's a junior warden, spoke up and said, I do that. I try to do that. I try to see the Christ in everybody. And and he talked about that experience and how hard it sometimes is. Various other people said things. And then we went on with the meeting and the rector had to leave early because we were discussing his salary and so forth. And he got off and I was thinking, well, maybe maybe that wasn't as great as I thought it was. Maybe my the message that I've learned so I'm learning and working on, so excited about with um, Michael and Tim Hayes and Jeannie, maybe it just didn't go over. And then I get a text, and he says, Dear Sue, really meaningful, moving and profound reflection. Thank you so much. Isn't that the coolest thing? So what I had made that mean was not true. So there's an example of misuse of thoughts. Well, it is so common throughout our day. That's why this work is calling us to watch every thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not alone, but that's a wonderful validation, Mm. right? Many times that's happening anyway, but you don't get the feedback from somebody. That's probably true. Absolutely. Another thing I thought of is, is how much your work is getting out there because I didn't use any Aramaic words, shebag and rukadukutja. I didn't get into any of that. It would be just muddying the waters. The principle doesn't need those words, really. And so I stayed within the common vocabulary between us at our church. And everything that I said was evidently the rector thought it was all good. It was something he could use and relate to or whatever he thought. It's just, it is translatable. Sometimes I think using the words, the Aramaic words, which are the doorway into proper understanding, are also a stumbling block. Well, here's the point. Are you still there or suddenly you disappeared? Can't hear you, Dr. Tim.
Susan. Can you hear me now? Well, I had to hang up and call back in. Hopefully I'm being heard. Area code 541, can you hear me? Yes, I can, Dr. Tim. Okay, just a minute. Susan, can you hear me? Yeah, you're back. I had to dial in again. Well, I don't think you did. I think I had to. So hold on a minute, Linda. Let let me just address what was happening with Susan. So, Susan, I was saying before the technology did what it did that Mm -hmm. please look at, and if you want to, scour it. Scour the way of mastery for what Michael Rice would call first-century Aramaic wisdom. And there are no words in it from Shabag and Shabak and Ruka de Kucha or Ruka or Rachma. You don't need those words. No, I don't. It's not about the words. I know. That's true. My introduction to them was with the use of those words, and the way of mastery has released us from that, and that's been very good for people in my culture. They just are are very odd, and our brain cells are all set up for different words. Yes, indeed. And it's not about the word. It's about the meaning contained in the brain cells of the people who are hearing those words. This is all part of the teaching. Michael Rice himself has said on numerous occasions, it's not about the word because a word in and of itself is a symbol of a symbol. Mm. And the only meaning that a word has is contained in the brain cells of the person who hears the vibration that we call a word. So please soften whatever that tension is within you where you think, oh, I'm maybe betraying the work or I'm not giving it purely enough because I'm not using, you know, the ancient Aramaic words. That's just silliness. Yeah, I didn't feel that way. I felt as if it got through just fine without them. I'm sure it did, and that's why it was received as as well as it was received. And the other gift or point to be made here that I want to rush in and make is that Many, many times in our lives, we have a positive impact like that, and we never get the direct feedback of it. That's probably true. Well, we've talked about it a number of different ways. You know, I remember chuckling about one of the things that came to me in the past few weeks on the Internet show where I was sitting and thinking about, you know, what I have done that might have been of help to somebody at this time or that time. And I'll never know all of the different times and ways. And then the next thing that happened was I flashed on a thing I did that wasn't so pleasant. Mm. 
And and then my mind said, yeah, and I don't know whether that ended up being a blessing for that other person or a big detriment that they ended up turning into this, you know, trauma in their life, and I'll never know. And I need mm-hmm. to be okay with not knowing. Oh, guess what? That's one of the primary first steps in the way of mastery. Put aside, put away, put down everything you think you know mm-hmm. and your need to know and be right and put away everything you think you need. And now you're starting on the path. And if you stay on that path, the the destination is assured. So, did you have another point? I have a couple more things. But go ahead and take Celinda and we can come back <clears throat> at this time. Celinda, your input, comment, question? Yes, I'm really enjoying this um, dialogue. And I, Susan, I concur immensely with you. Um, I really appreciate not being bound by words. And uh, I'm doing my very best to learn how to truly listen and to meet people where they are. And I think that's what you shared today was a wonderful example of that. Um, I've been through enough religious paths, spiritual paths, to realize that I want to walk down the middle because the middle is very wide and very expanded and that I want to include all the points of view because I'm, um, I just want to learn more and more. And so I just, I, I'll give you a personal example. <clears throat> There's been a lot of discussion on the radio show about whether God is a verb or a noun, and there's a little a Jewish book written by a Jewish gentleman, rather, that's called God is a Verb. And I thought, why do I have to? Why do I have to decide between one or the other as being true? Because for me, um, this life force is definitely some—I uh, won't call it an object, but some. Being and also, and when we are being, we are doing at the same time. So we're doing whatever we're being. So I just thought I'd share that with you. And uh, great um, accolades to you, Susan, for your work. I am just piggybacking on that. It's beautiful. There's so much similarity between us. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Anything else, Celinda? No, that's fine. Thank you. I just wanted to share that I could hear you and that also I applaud uh, the efforts of Susan to right. be who Let's she see. is. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. I'll, I'll mute you so we can uh, You can press one on your phone to put a hand down and raise it again if you want to get back in the queue. And we're back with you, Susan. What are the other points you wanted to make? Well, just um, I read the Erica Vega paper in our support group today, and people just loved it. And one of them said, I'm going to use that. I get to experience this. I get to do this. 
as seeing everything as I'm getting to have this experience. It's just good. Um, and then another thing, there's one person in that group that I've been practicing seeing as Christ because the person presents in such a way as I haven't felt drawn to her much. And one of my criticisms is that she's constantly talking about work that's being done on her house. She'll go into great detail about the porch and the kind of paint they use and the third floor and the radiator is broken down. And it all of a sudden occurred to me today is her work comes to her through the house and God comes to her through the house. Her growing happens when she's putting tiles on the bathroom floor. She's she's learning things. I was thinking she's a, a shut room. God can't get through there. This is all my judgment and assessments of her, and I've been watching this for weeks, months, really. And today, remembering, remembering the exercise of seeing a person as innocent, asking for help and forgiveness for letting go of my own projections, it just all of a sudden became clear that she's getting what she needs. God's there. I'm thinking God isn't there. And I said to her, oh, look what you're doing. You're doing this and you're getting it. You're getting all you need from fiddling with the house. And she said, yeah, that's true. So it was a, a, a nice breakthrough to have that. Well, I you I know, the, hold of it. There, there, there have been a couple different times in your talk just today where you've talked about people mentioning that they try to see the other person as Christ, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they're either, they're either doing it. In the one case, you had somebody report that he's been doing that and it's beneficial. And then the other mentions of it were situations where people were not able to view the other person as Christ. And, What comes to me to say here is the most obvious thing to me when I am saying something or thinking or feeling like I'm having a hard time viewing somebody else as the Christ, guess what that means? I'm not seeing myself as the Christ. Mm. And that's what this book says. When the world reflects to you something, we were just reading it, anytime the world reflects to you something that's less than love and seems to make you feel a negative emotion, it's coming up for you to dismantle it. Mm -hmm. So if you have any difficulty viewing the person in front of you as the Christ, that means you're not seeing, you're not feeling yourself as the Christ in that moment. So take the Mm -hmm. focus off of them, turn it inside, and ask yourself, okay, what's going on within me? How am I creating this upset? How am I formulating a judgment here? How is it that I think I know something about them? 
Let me come back to the very first thing in the promise. Let me cancel everything I think I know. I don't know anything about them. Mm -hmm. Which is why I said earlier, rather than, here's what it means when this person, I said, I'm making up a story about what anything means. So when Mm -hmm. I make up a story that leaves me feeling upset, I'm perfectly free in that moment to make up a different story. And if I like upset, I can create even more upsetting thoughts. But if I like (laughs) calm, if I like to claim my peace, if I like to feel compassion and gratitude, I can make up a story that leaves me feeling that. That's the invitation of this work. Especially, quite explicitly here in the third lesson. So, more comments? Another point? It's good to be reminded of that. Thanks. Again, um, one of our members in the group, Tim's sister, said there's a part in the Bible that says, ask and you shall receive. And she said, I don't know that I'm in the right frame to be able to ask in a way that would allow the gift to come through. Is there any way we can prepare ourselves? And I was thinking the answer, I didn't say this at the time, but the answer would be similar to what the way of mastery is saying. If we ask for forgiveness for how we are seeing this and that, especially if it's negative, and then allow, soften, and ask to be shown, wouldn't that be a good procedure in order to set oneself up to ask in a way that makes us open to really receiving? That's kind of convoluted. Did you understand what I said? I don't know, but here's what comes to my mind. Okay. In the in the listening to... Michael Singer's work, one of the really powerful things he said is, here's the question to ask. The question is, what am I doing to block myself from the emotion, the experience, the joy, the bliss, the whatever it is, because it's already in me. I'm just blocking Mm. my awareness of it. Great. Perfect. So the idea here is if somebody's hoping or wishing or thinking, gee, I should be able to manifest more money or a different house or a different car or a better relationship, if you apply the the Michael Singer situation there, you say, gee, what am I holding on to as a belief about myself or the world around me or my worthiness that's literally blocking me from receiving this. Mm. And then I get to see my negative judgments about myself. Mm -hmm. That is good. I'm going to write her a little email. That's very good. Thank you. 
Michael Rice talks about one of the big breakthroughs he had personally. He was going down to uh, give a lecture in a workshop in uh, Florida. And the title of the workshop he was heading to was, Are You Still Waiting for Your Ship to Come In? Which one did you send out? So what what energy vibrations am I sending out when I'm sitting here feeling bad or unlovable or unworthy? That's what I'm doing to prevent myself from manifesting or achieving or moving forward. Mm-hmm. And if I don't become aware of that and look upon it lovingly, as I'm, you know, as I'm invited to do here in the promise before we even start the way of mastery, instead of judging myself and beating myself up and say, oh, what a loser I am, and oh, I can't believe how negative I've been. And if I look upon it innocently with loving intention and see it as per- completely neutral, even if I've spent 80 years running myself into the ground and entertaining self-loathing thoughts and being mean and bitter to people, I look back on it and say, oh, that's how I was acting before I understood my complete and total innocence. That's how I was acting before I understood that I could get access to the Christ mind and I could see the face of Christ in everyone around me. That's what I did when I didn't know any better. Mm. I look on it lovingly. I look on it as the pathway to get me to where I am today. And I change the impact it has on me. And then I quit Mm -hmm. putting out that negative energy. Right. So that's what I would offer. Thanks. Good stuff, Dr. Tim. Did you have another quick point to make? No. Thanks. Okay. Well, thank you again for the call. Thank you, Solinda, for the comments. This is so close that I will leave the reading there and move on with our second hour. We have uh, four minutes left, and area code 727 just raised a hand. Area code 727, you're in the air. How can we support you? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is powerful in that so much of my peace is consistent. My birth family And I have had a relationship since I was a child of my being feeling outcast and invisible and simply the switch of 
rather than feeling rejected and abandoned, seeing the love of Christ for me and in me, and understanding that those feelings must be, not must be, can be experienced in that dynamic and that feeling the love of Christ and the acceptance of Christ in all things, all the time, and being centered in Christ's love for myself gives that piece of acceptance for all things and that that is simply enough. So thank you for that beautiful, beautiful insight of change the thought. Well, you're entirely welcome and deserving. Is there a first name I can use to associate with you? Of course, Kate. Kate. Welcome, Kate. I don't believe we've spoken before. I don't think so. But thank you so much for the comment and question. We're down to our last minute and a half, but it's been uh, delightful hearing from you. Thank you for that. I'll mute you so you can listen the second hour if you so choose. Our second hour today is the recording of part one of the workshop titled On Creating Consciously with Dr. Michael Rice. I'll remind us all that we come from love, we're made of the stuff we call love, we actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Welcome to On Creating Consciously, uh, a workshop that looks at the way that we as human beings create our lives, how we create every situation in our lives, and what responsibility would look like if we were aware of the fact that we are creative beings. Probably the greatest atrocity done to us as human beings down through the ages is that we've had hidden from us the fact that our basic nature is that of creatorship, that we're made in the image and likeness of the creator. And so I want to take a look at the whole process of life and what part we play in setting that up and some tools for perhaps catching parts of ourselves that set up those situations that we say to ourselves, you know, why is this happening to me again? Uh, that, of course, is the title of, uh, of the main workshop that we do, the title of our book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? It's, it's kind of interesting to, uh, to get the phone calls we get at Heartland. People will hear about the book, and, and we'll get a phone call saying, um, gee, uh, do you have this book called uh, Why Are They Doing This to Me Again? <laughs> or Why Am I Doing This to Myself Again? We get all kinds of uh, interesting titles. You can sort of tell a lot about what's going on in people's lives by, by the way they uh, ask for that book. In any event, how many people here tonight brought a body with you? How many brought a body? Let me see a show of hands. Most everybody puts their hand up. Okay. How many think that in that body that you brought with you, there's such thing as chemistry? How many have chemistry happening in their bodies? Most everybody says yes. Well, we're going to be at variance tonight because I don't agree with you. I intend to prove to you that you did not bring a body with you tonight. I intend to prove to you who are watching this video that you do not have a body and that there's no such thing as chemistry. 
Well, it sounds like a tall order. Where do we start to look into that one? Well, let's start, and I'd like to quote Einstein. Einstein is con considered probably the greatest genius, or one of the greatest geniuses of all time, especially in the area of science. And it's interesting with his theory of relativity that he said that his theory of relativity would be of more interest to theologians than it would be to physicists because he knew the implications that tie in with who we really are and, and how this whole process of life is created. And it's interesting how long it takes for scientists or so-called scientists to catch up with good science. Einstein says this, on such things as matter, we have been all wrong. What we have heretofore called matter is energy, energy whose vibrations have been so lowered as to be perceptible to the senses. There is no matter. Einstein says there is no matter. So when you say you brought a body with you, what you're saying is Einstein isn't right. Because, of course, if there are bodies, there has to be matter. Well, gee, Michael, you've got a lot of nerves standing up there waving that chunk of matter around in front of me telling me there's no such thing as matter. Well, I'm going to invite you to look differently at what we call matter and start to see that what we've called matter and the beliefs that we have in matter perhaps entrap us in something that isn't true. And being entrapped in something as creative beings, we create certain results over and over and over again and we say, well, that's just the way life, that's just the way the world is. Or that's just the way I am. And it's not true that that's the way life, the world, or you are. That's the way you're creating, your creative process is operating. And when you change the nature of your creative process, then you'll see changes where it seemed previously that changes were impossible. And so I want to look into this idea of the, that, that there is no matter. Another statement Einstein makes that I really love is a statement that says that you can't solve a problem with the mind that created it. In other words, if your mind is the device through which you create and your mind doesn't know what's going on, then you're trapped in the process. And so you have to be removed from the process. And the most ancient mechanism for removing people from that process was called a parable. You go back and you listen to the, in, in the book of Matthew, it speaks about the teachings of, of a man named Jesus. And our, our work tonight will look into, in a certain perspective, into especially the Aramaic teachings of Jesus. Jesus spoke Aramaic as his native language. And in that native language, he did not teach theology. He taught law. And if you listen, he says, not I come not to destroy theology or I come not to destroy religion. He says, I come not to destroy the law. And then he says an interesting thing. We're told in the Greek translations that he said, I come to fulfill the law. But in Aramaic what he said is, I come to add unto the law or add unto your understanding of the law. And so to understand the lawful orderly process by which we create is what he said he was here to teach us. And a parable, if you listen to Matthew, it says without a parable he did not teach. There are many who want to try and find literal words and literal meanings, but if without a parable he did not teach, everything had a parallel meaning. In the Aramaic language the word parable means parallel meaning. And so I'd like to, to present a parable for this idea that there's no such thing as matter and you don't have a body. Let's take a look. 
If we brought someone from the jungles who had never experienced something more complex than a dugout canoe, and we took him to the airport where we had a propeller already spinning. The motor on this, this uh, airplane is started. The propeller is spinning when our friend from the jungle shows up. He looks at the airplane propeller and what does he see? Does he see a pivot point with four arms rotating around it? No, he sees a shiny silver disc. He has an image show up in his mind that's not true. He experiences a shiny silver disc. Where does the shiny silver disc exist? Anywhere in the world? Absolutely nowhere. The only place it exists is in his mind. And his mind creates an appearance. His mind creates an illusion. His mind shows him something that isn't there. And so if you listen, 2,000 years ago, the Master said, do not judge by appearance. Why? Because the mind shows you things that aren't true. You get experiences from the mind that never happened. The shiny silver disc never happened anywhere in the world, did it? So it showed up and was experienced in his mind. Now, why doesn't he see four arms organized around a pivot point? Well, the rate of spin of the propeller is so fast that his antenna called the eye and the brain cells that fire in response to the information the eye receives don't operate quickly enough to show him what's actually happening. And so the mind not being able to keep up with the rate of spin makes its best guess. And its best guess is totally illusion. It isn't what happened. And so if he judges by appearance, let's imagine our friend from the jungle holds on to the incorrect understanding that this thing in front of him is a shiny silver disc and he wants to see what the friction would feel like on his fingertips if he touches the shiny silver disc. What happens having judged by that appearance? Big mistake, right? Very sore fingers, if there are any left. Because he's dealing with an image that's true in his mind, but isn't true in the world. He makes a very grave error. Well, in precisely the same fashion, if we look at this world of so-called bodies, if we could see what was actually there, we'd see this whirring mass of electrons, protons, neutrons, etc. We would not see matter. We would see energy in motion. But because in the same way the mind can't keep up with the rate of spin of the propeller, the mind can't keep up with the rate of spin of this atomic structure. And so it creates an image, an illusion. It shows us something that isn't there. Now, someone would say, well, but Michael, I see it, I can touch it, I can feel it. Obviously, it's there. And obviously, it's solid because, look, when you clap your hands together, they don't go through each other. They just stop right there. Why? If it's not solid. Well, let's imagine for a moment that one of my hands was made of radio waves. What happens when I clap my hands together if one hand is made of radio waves? It goes right through the other hand, right? Obviously, it's not solid if the radio wave will go through it. Why does it appear solid when I put my hands together that are so-called flesh? 
It appears solid because the two energies are in resonance with each other and it's the energy interchange between the two that makes the appearance of solid, that, that causes the energy exchange to happen that stops one hand from going through the other. One hand made of radio waves passes through. Now what would happen if both of my hands were made of radio waves? They would appear solid to each other again, wouldn't they? But only because they are matching frequencies. They are similar frequencies. So when we start to understand something about this energy system, what we'll see is that this isn't matter, but that it's energy. And we'll see that as an energy system, something organizes the energy system. So we see that this thing is organized. It turns into organic structure. And unless we understand the something that sets up that structure, we're going to think that whatever's in the structure must be natural. And we're not going to be able to go to the cause level of that something to change it. Though we as human beings have the faculty that allows us to go to cause level in that process. But if we're stuck in an illusion, we can't go to cause. We'll keep trying to change the effect. Now what would changing an effect look like? Let's imagine that our friend from the jungles, we bring him in and we sit him down in a chair. And we have a solid concrete wall over there. White painted wall. And we project onto that wall a picture of a, a table and there's a bottle on the table. Now imagine that we explain to our friend from the jungles that if he can move the bottle from one side of the table to the other, he can have whatever reward he wants, anything he asks for. Hey, this looks like a pretty simple task, eh? Now remember, this is a projected image. It's in 3D. This fellow knows nothing about cameras, projection booths, etc. And so he goes over to pick the bottle up and move it from one side of the table to the other. And what happens? He's dealing with an effect. The bottle doesn't move. Now you can imagine all of the gyrations he might go through to try to move the bottle. But it's not going to move, is it? Until he deals with the original. Imagine you come in the room and you, he explains to you what he's trying to do, so you hand him a jackhammer. What does he do? He takes the jackhammer and he punches a hole in the wall in an attempt to move the bottle, but the bottle remains right where it was because he's trying to change an effect. So imagine here he stands, he's just punched this huge hole in the concrete. He's sweaty, he's hot, he's thirsty. And you come in and he explains what it is he's trying to accomplish. And you say, well, tell you what, here's a cool drink, have a seat, relax. I'll be right back. You have the key for the projector booth. You go back to the projector booth, you open it, you go in, you walk over, you pick the bottle up, you move it from one side of the table to the other, and he's, he's amazed. It's a miracle. Everything he tried to do wouldn't move the bottle. And you come back out. Could you imagine him wanting to worship you for the miracle that you've performed? Could, could you imagine him following on his hands and knees? Oh, look what you were able to do. And might you say something to him like, Gee, you know the things I do, you can do, and even greater, if you know how the system works. But if you don't know where cause lies, obviously it looks really difficult <laughs> to move the bottle. 
Well, the same thing happens if we don't understand the lawful orderly process that organizes this energy system called life. And so we want to look into what it is that's at cause in that process and start to see beyond matter. Now, the second question I asked you was about chemistry. Well, Michael, obviously there must be chemistry. I mean, we've got universities that teach all about it. People spend years studying it. I had a professor in Indianapolis about four years ago when I did this workshop come up to me afterward. He was a professor of chemistry at a local university. And he said, you know something, Michael? You're right. We don't have a clue what we're talking about. He teaches the subject at a university level. I don't know what I'm talking about. What is chemistry? Well, if we go to the opening words in the book of John to key us into what's going on in this process, that we would call the creative process. And the opening words in the book of John, contrary to what we're told, do not say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh, as we're told it does. In the Aramaic language, in the original words, what is said there is that in the beginning was the mind energy. And the mind energy became flesh. Now we've got a clue as to what's going on. What we're told there is that what becomes flesh is mind energy. Now you listen to Einstein, and Einstein almost says exactly the same thing. Einstein says there's no such thing as matter. What we have heretofore called matter is energy. Now, he perhaps didn't have the piece that it was mind energy, but he said energy becomes matter. You'd almost think he was reading from the book of John. If you go back into the Aramaic language, and, and the Aramaic language is the native language of five of the world's major religions, and I'd offer the reason why those religions have hung around so long is because they come out of a system of understanding that understood cause. They come out of a physics language, out of a culture that understood more about physics than we still understand yet today. That understood more about how we operate and how this mind operates. They knew enough to say that in the beginning of the so-called flesh world is the mind energy. Now let's take a look at that on a practical level in regard to chemistry. Imagine that our friend from the jungles comes to visit. Well, let's start, let's start a little earlier in the process. Let's see in regard to chemistry. We're going to talk about that. Let's imagine that we want to find you in an awake state, or relatively awake, but in your, your most level chemical condition, where your, your so-called chemistry would as, be as level as we might find you. And a, a good example that most people can identify with is, how many have ever driven, say, the interstate system over a period of 20 years, every day, back and forth to the office? And, and some days you pull into your parking place at the office, and, and as you put your foot on the brake, you kind of shake your head, and it's like, oh my God, how did I get here? Anybody ever had that one? Or you get home and it's not till after you're in your garage that you realize you just drove 15 miles? Anybody ever done that on the interstate system? It's like a blotto. Would you say that if somebody were in the back seat measuring your chemistry, that you're in probably about the most level chemical condition we'd find you? Would that be a reasonable assumption? 
I think it probably would be. So let's imagine that you're driving along the interstate and we're measuring your chemistry. And you look up ahead of you on the right-hand side of the road and there's a set of blue lights flashing. Or depending on what state you're in, maybe red lights flashing. What's going to happen to your chemistry? Or, or you look in your rearview mirror and there's a set of blue or red lights flashing. What's going to happen to your chemistry? What's going to happen? You're going to get a flood of adrenaline, right? Or, well, wait a minute now. If chemistry doesn't exist, how can you have a flood of adrenaline? I would offer that adrenaline doesn't exist. Adrenals don't exist. There's no such thing. Well, how can you say that, Michael? I mean, you acknowledge that there's adrenaline that you can measure. I'd offer that it's not adrenaline that we're measuring. That's an illusion. That's like the shiny silver disc. It looks like it's there, but it really isn't. Let's ask our friend from the jungles to ride along beside you on this journey where we're measuring your chemistry. And we're going to measure his too. And again, every time I use the word chemistry, I put it in quotes. So we're measuring the chemistry in both of your so-called bodies. We're putting the, word bo putting the word bodies in quotes too. Now, imagine the, the red lights, the blue lights flash behind you. And our friend from the jungle notices that there's something going on for you. <laughs> something has happened. It's rather obvious by your reaction. And so he somehow communicates that he wants to know what's up for you, what's going on. And you rather excitedly turn and point to the blue or red lights behind you. Now, he turns and he looks, and of course the blue lights cause this agitated chemistry and this uh, adrenaline flow, right? But he looks, does he have an adrenaline flow? No, he looks and he just, wow, what a great color, right? He doesn't have the same mind energy that you do about blue lights. What kind of mind energy is resonated in you? That is, resonance adds energy to something. There's an energy in you. The blue lights show up and resonate or add energy to that. What energy do you have in your system about blue lights that our friend from the jungle simply doesn't have? What is it? Yeah, you've got the mind energy of fear, right? But he doesn't have any mind energy of fear. Now, if blue lights cause adrenaline to pump in the system, obviously, he should have as much adrenaline running as you do. But he doesn't. And the only difference between you and he is he has no mind energy of fear about blue lights. And I would offer that what shows up as that flood of adrenaline in the system is really the resonance of the mind energy of fear. And when that mind energy of fear solidifies, it looks like what we call the chemical adrenaline. And I'd offer that every piece of mind energy that we engage in builds an organic structure to flow through. The mind energy that you engage in organizes. In other words, when there's enough mind energy of fear, there will develop in the system an organ to express that fear. 
And that organ is a solidified energy form. And we, when we can reach behind to cause, can start to change the energy form that produces that expression, that so-called chemical. Now let's take it one more step. Let's imagine that you go with our friend from the jungles to the jungle for a visit. Imagine it's a beautiful, sunny, wonderful day, 76 degrees, it's just perfect. And there you are being guided around through these lush, beautiful forests. And all of a sudden, our friend from the jungles gets the whiff, the odor of a rattlesnake. Now, what happens if we're following him and measuring his chemistry, what are we going to find? There's probably going to be a rush of what we call adrenaline, but what we really know is that he's got the mind energy of fear about rattlesnakes. And so what's really showing up when he smells and therefore knows there's a rattlesnake nearby? What shows up is the mind energy of fear resonates in his structure. Now, let's imagine that, like he did with you in the car, you notice that there's something going on for him. And somehow you're able to communicate with him, what is it? Now, he can go through all the gyrations that he wants in his native language to tell you about rattlesnakes, and while you might get from his agitation there's something going on, there's not going to be any really specific response likely, is there? But let's imagine that he gets out his little translator book, thumbs through it, and in his agitated state, rat, rattle, 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 rattlesnake. <laughs> what happens to your chemistry? The minute the mind energy of fear is resonated, you have a flood of it. And I'd offer you don't have a flood of adrenaline. You have a flood of the mind energy of fear. What we have in this energy system called the body is a device that solidifies energy. And we have a lot more to do with how this system operates than we've been led to believe. In fact, if you go back 2,000 years ago, and again, that, that Aramaic language is so incredible. I know when I first found it, my background's in electronics, and when I first found the Aramaic, it was very clear to me this was a physics language. This is a language that expresses and understands energy systems theory. And so you listen to people in that language asking this master who has spent decades studying and understanding how the system works. They say to him, look, bottom line is, how does this thing work? What's going on here? And there's a lawful process that he referred to. And you know, a lawyer, when a lawyer does a study of the law, the laws are usually written in code. And the process of figuring out what the code says is called code pleading. If you go to an attorney, if you go to a lawyer and you say, gee, you know, uh, I've got this legal question, give me an answer. Chances are the lawyer is going to go, he's going to get out all these reference materials and reference the codes on that particular legal point. He's going to go to the court decisions on that particular legal point. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to study that code and his final analysis will be the result of this code pleading process. Well, 2,000 years ago, Jesus had done the code pleading process for how life works. And they asked him, how does it work? 
what's going on here. And he reduced the whole body of the law to three simple words. Three words that not even a Philadelphia lawyer could misinterpret. He said, folks, here's how it works. Ask and you receive. Now that makes it pretty simple. And what that means is, of course, if you've received, then somehow you have asked. And you better figure out how the asking process goes. And I would offer that the asking process goes by engaging in mind energy. That that's all you have to do to ask for a result in your life. So be careful where you allow your mind to go, because where your mind goes, your energy system follows. Now, many people want to blame others for what's going on in their lives. When things are going well, of course, it's easy to own. You know, look how great it is. Wow, look what I've done. But when it's not going so well, don't we always know who the problem is? And isn't the problem usually them? If only they would be different. Well, this one doesn't let you off the hook. Ask and you receive. If something comes to you, it is a product of your asking. Life is nothing but construction and delivery. That's all it is. Construction and delivery. And what you ask for, life must deliver to you. Now, of course, many people will say, well, how did I ask for this? <laughs> You've got to start to look at where your mind has been. And part of where your mind has been is in your whole environmental and genetic history, your whole life. And if you go back into the Aramaic language where they understood, they said the sins of the Father, now we could add the blessings too, the sins, the blessings of the Father will be passed, yea, unto three and four generations. In other words, if you engage in an energy, this energy is stored in your structure. I would offer this so-called body-mind unit is a device that registers absolutely everything that comes to it. And as a device that registers everything that comes to it, every thought, every feeling, every emotion, every reality you've ever engaged in is stored as an energy holographically in every cell in your structure, including the sperm and the egg. Were you to conceive a child tomorrow, that child would have in its structure every thought you've ever thought, every feeling you've ever felt, every reality you've ever engaged in. As you have the previous generations from your structure. When they said the sins of the father will be passed into three and four generations, that wasn't some kind of a theological threat or the punishment of a punishing God. That was simply the way the energy system works. You put an energy in and it passes from generation to generation. In fact, if you go back and you listen to that story about, remember the Jews wandered in the desert for 40 years? And I'll bet if we ask the average person in our audience, the average person in, that's watching this video, at what age you started to question and wonder what was really going on, I'll bet if we averaged it all out, we'd find that the average age is about 40 years. That word desert in the scriptures means the un unconscious. Most people wander unconsciously for about 40 years before they start to wonder what's really going on here. 
Anybody ever feel like your 40 years should be up? <laughs> and remember, the Jews wandered for 40 years in the desert. Now, you know, there's a reason why they wandered for 40 years. You know what that reason is? Moses would not stop and ask for directions. That's why they... No, I'm just kidding. But why did they wander for 40 years? Remember, there was something that had to happen before they could get into the promised land. What is the promised land? The promised land is the land of conscious co-creation. You put your asking in the system. There's nothing that's out of harmony in you for that asking, and you simply bring about that result. So the Jews wandered for 40 years in the desert, and they couldn't get into the promised land until what happened? They said the old generation had to die off. Did that mean everybody in old physical bodies had to physically die? No, the root of the word generation is genari, which means cause. All of the old causes in the energy system, all of the old mind energy had to be removed before you could get to a new creation, the promised land, before you could do it differently. And so your asking produces the result of construction and delivery within your life. Now, a lot of people didn't want to hear that 2,000 years ago. They said, no, no, I can't, I can't accept that. Just, you know, tell me how it really works. He says, okay, let me tell you in a different way. Let me say words differently, and maybe this time you'll grasp. And, and you know, your attorney might, after he's given you the result of his code plea, and you kind of roll your eyes around and say, what are you talking about, might try to say it in a different way. So here he says it a little bit differently than ask and you shall receive. And he, he quotes, you go back into the Old Testament, and you hear it stated there a little differently, only in this case it comes directly from the Creator. And the Creator says this, of the works of my hands. So there's the effect world. The works of the hands of the Creator. It says, command ye, me. Here's God that says, you tell me what you want and I'll go to work. And I'll produce it in your life. That's a pretty clear statement of how this process of creating goes. And because we have all of the creation of our past generations stored in us, oftentimes we ask for things that we're not even cognizant of, that we're not conscious of. Things that have been implanted in us from the previous generations. And so when you recognize that that's another statement of this creative process, that the works of the Creator's hands, because the Creator has said to you, and you can, you can almost imagine the Creator, the Creator's been in charge of all life up until humans appear. Nobody argues with the Creator. I mean, would you think of a, a pair of robins coming back? Let's say you live in this place where the robins go south for the winter. The robins come back, and this pair of robins land in your backyard. One turns to the other and says, You know, dear, we've been building a robin's nest every year for the last five years in this beautiful backyard, and I think this year we should build an Oriole model. You think the robin's ever going to do that? It's not going to happen. The robin has no choice but to build a robin's nest. Imagine we've got a salmon in the South Pacific, and the salmon gets the call to go back to the place where it was spawned. Can you imagine the salmon responding to that? Uh, I, I, excuse me, I beg your pardon, you say what? You want me to do what? 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, let, wait a minute. Let me get this clear. You want me to swim from these nice, warm South Pacific waters, 3,000 miles to that icy cold stream where I was spawned. You want me to swim upstream against the rocks, get beat half to death on those rocks, legs, and die? You're crazy. I'm staying here. You're not going to find a salmon that does that. The salmon gets the call, it's told what to do, and it goes and it does it. No questions asked. There's no creature we know of that can consciously originate mind energy but you and I. And you can almost imagine the creator that has run all of life going within and saying, okay, I'm going to carry out whatever you ask me for. You tell me what you want. You tell me. Now, still people maybe didn't want to hear that. So Jesus said, well, let me tell you a different way that you might be able to hear it. It is going to be done unto you. According to your faith. In other words, what you hold as the mind energy about a thing, if you hold that it's a poverty-stricken world, if you hold that it's a dangerous world, then that's where your faith lies. That's where the energy of your mind goes, and you'll produce exactly that result. Because you are a creative being, and the Creator said, tell me what you want. You don't want to hear it that way? Well, let's list it another way. Seek. And you will find. So we were told in many, many different ways what the creative process looks like in this energy system called life and what part we have to play with it. Now, when they said to him, well, how do you tell where somebody's really at? How do you tell where this mind energy system is? He said, well, that's easy. You tell where the mind energy system is by the fruit that it produces. How do you tell? Well, you just look at the results. You look at the fruit and you know exactly what's going on. Well, but I, I don't see how that fits. That doesn't make sense to me. I ask for wonderful things and terrible things happen in my life. That obviously isn't true, that you just look at the fruit to see where somebody's mind energy's at. And they said, well, you know, there's one more little hook. And that is that you have an unconscious mind. There's a part of you that's hidden from yourself. And so they said, you must take care of the heart. For out of it are the issues in life. And that word heart in a modern updated language would be the unconscious. They want to credit Freud pardon me, with discovering the unconscious. Freud no more discovered the unconscious than fly in the air. 
It was understood thousands of years ago. Only it was called the heart instead of the unconscious. So they said, take care what you hide from yourself because the mind energy that you hide from yourself will be at an unconscious or a heart level and whatever the strongest resonating energy in you is will produce the result in your life. So if you're not sure what that is, if you're not sure what's hidden in your heart, then you have to look at the results you produce. And the results that you produce will reflect exactly what's going on in your heart. And when you take that kind and that quality and that level of responsibility, responsibility becomes a tool for being able to access the hidden parts of your mind, for being able to access the unconscious. And as you're able to access it, you're able to take charge of it and you're able to change it. And many people still want, however, to hang out and blame. No, it must be all their fault. It's got to be somebody else's fault. And let me just go sock it to them one more time. You know, I want to I be able to do violence to those who've done it to me, basically is what they were saying. And the master said, well, I got one more piece of information for you that's really important to look at. You want to take out your sword and go after somebody for what's going on in your life? Well, those who live by the sword, are going to die by the sword. They'll die exactly the same way. Because this process of life is a creative process. We think, ah, we have these people in the world, we'll just go make war on them and we'll get rid of those bad guys. But what we don't realize is that in the making of war are the seeds for the next war. It is a creative act. It engages in mind energy that produces a like result. We can't do enough violence to get rid of violence because violence itself is a creative act. If you go back, the Master said that the key lie in being able to stand is a space of love. In fact, you could almost interpret him saying, anything that's on the right-hand side of this equation, anyone that you see that you think has produced these results in your life, he said in order to really take charge of your life and in order to heal, you had to be able to stand with the mind of love. You had to be able to hold the condition of love in your mind when you thought of anybody on this side of the equation that you had been blaming for what was going on in your life. And what that means is that you step into a space of love and at the same time you step into a space of responsibility. And responsibility doesn't mean we're to blame for what's going on. It just means that everything that shows up in our lives, that there's a part of us that's involved in that process. And when we recognize that there's a part of us involved in everything that happens, then responsibility becomes the way to access the hidden part of the mind, that which is in the heart. Because until you take responsibility, that part of the mind isn't going to be available to you. You're not going to be able to see it. So to take care of the unconscious or to take care of the heart, to take responsibility for the issues that show up in your life and to find the part of you that needs to be changed in order to make it different becomes the key. And usually when people go through the process of healing, they step through several different levels of energy in doing it. And the levels that they step through are very identifiable. And it's a good thing to have a handle on what that process is going to look like.
Because what's going to happen as you step through the process of really taking responsibility for your life is that healing's going to happen. And healing doesn't always feel and look good. And so when we look at how we create abundance, and, and when we talk about abundance in this creative process, we're talking about abundance in every area of life. We're talking physical, mental, emotional, relationship, financial, health, aliveness, joy. We're talking about every aspect. And I'll get the person who says, well, Michael, wait a minute now. You know, I, I hear what you're saying there, and that ask, and you receive, and you know, I've been, for the last 20 years, praying for money. Now, every day I pray for money. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. And so what's happening? Well, I'm still in poverty. I don't understand it. Why isn't my prayer being answered? Well, let's investigate. Let's see. Uh, how much time do you spend doing this prayer process you're talking about? Oh, well, I usually 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night, 20 minutes a day, I focus on and, and pray for money, for abundance in my life. Okay, so now we've determined what you do with your mind energy for 20 minutes of the day. Let's look at the other 23 hours and 50 minutes. What do you do? Well, you know, I mean, life is tough. I mean, I struggle. I work three jobs to make ends meet. I can hardly ever pay the bills. There's just never enough money. I mean, it's, it's just, it's always been tough. It's always a stress. It's always over. I can just never catch up. There just isn't enough. Oh, so what you're telling me is that once you get your eight hours sleep underway, and probably a good part of that still stays in the worry about money, is that you spend most of your time focused on the fact that there's lack, that there's not enough, and that there never will be enough. Which prayer do you suppose is the strongest? The one where you sit quietly and say, God, give me money today, please? Or the one that says, oh my God, there's not enough money? And that prayer that goes on for 12, 13, 14 waking hours. You sit and you write checks to the, to the electric company. Do you whine, do you moan and you complain every time you write a check to the electric company? If so, then the mind energy that you engage in as you complain about the electric bill is too high and I can't afford to pay it and you, you send that money out with resentment, guess what? The universe has to respond to that mind energy and produce the result. And so what's the result going to look like? Well, money's going to come to you grudgingly and sparingly. You know, when the Master spoke about this creative process, he said, here's another way to say it. As you sow, you will reap. And if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. He was speaking about the creative process. If you can't joyfully and with abundance pay the electric bill, get rid of the electricity. Because paying for it with the grudge means that you send a message to the universe that says, universe, send me money with a grudge. If you pay for the phone and you complain about how expensive it is and how you can't afford it, you just amplify the mind energy of there's not enough and the universe has to respond accordingly. It can't give you anything different than that. If you can't pay for it with abundance and appreciation and delight, then get rid of the phone until you can appreciate it or any service in your life. 
and bring those services back in when with abundance you can say, I'm sure delighted that I can have this. I'm sure delighted that I've got the abundance to pay for this. I love paying my phone bill. I appreciate the service that I get. Now, you send that message out to the universe and the universe will start to respond by sending you money with appreciation attached instead of resentment attached. But you've got to decide the way that it works. The universe is going to follow your lead. You know, I like to tell the story about, you know, when you, oftentimes we speak in churches and, and we'll go to churches and you look at how many people who are still living maybe 25 years ago in the mindset where they would go into a gas station and buy a dollar's worth of gas and they'd actually be able to drive off the gas station lot with that dollar's worth of gas. Now today, nobody would think about going and putting a dollar's worth of gas in their car because you'd hardly get off the lot. You wouldn't have enough gas to get on the lot and back off of it with that dollar hardly. But you know, it's interesting, they go to church and they see this large church, etc., etc., and they think when they put a dollar in the collection plate, they've really done something meaningful. Never realizing. I, I like to tell the story about the, uh, the $100 bill and the $1 bill that meet at the shredding plant, you know, with the mint, where they take all the old torn bills and such. And the $100 bill and the $1 bill meet, and, and they have a conversation, and the $100 bill's bragging about, you know, I've been to Rome, I've been to Paris, I've been to all the finest restaurants, all the finest clubs in the world. I'm ready to go. I've lived a full life. And the dollar bill responds and says, Oh, I'm not ready to go. All I've ever done is gone to church. <laughs> and you look at how people, how they support what supports them. And then they wonder why they're reaping sparingly. Step into abundance. And, and abundance doesn't have to do with quantity. Remember Jesus used an example of the woman who had a, what, what was called a widow's mite. Now, a widow's mite today would probably be the equivalent of a few pennies. And he used the example of that woman, and he said, now here's a woman who did something with abundance. Here's a woman who went in with only pennies to offer, and her pennies were more meaningful, not because of quantity, her pennies were more meaningful because of the mind energy that she gave it with. She gave it with abundance and with appreciation. And there was quantity attached relative to where she was. And then he used the example of the wealthy person who goes to the same place and gives 100,000 times as much and it's meaningful because it's not done with the idea of support. It's not done with the mind energy of abundance. It's done with the mind energy of, well, let me make sure everybody sees what I'm doing. That's an ego game. And that the widow's might produced more of a result of abundance and was more of a symbol of abundance. And so it's not to do with quantity. It's got to do with the mind energy connected. I can remember the point where I switched into doing spiritual work. I switched into doing this type of teaching. And I had come from a background that taught me that to do spiritual work was to live in poverty. And prior to switching into doing this work, I was in business. I had uh, three businesses. I had 60 employees. I had a Mark III on one side of my driveway. I had an Eldorado on the other. And I came to the point where I was guided and knew that my purpose was to do this work. 
And so I left the business world, went back to school, and started to study full-time and to teach full-time. And for a period of about almost seven years doing this work, I lived in total poverty. I mean, didn't know how we were going to feed the kids the next meal sometimes. And I can remember the very moment at which the shift happened for me. I was in Florida. We had uh, moved to the North Georgia mountains, and I was starting to work on a book at that point. My daughter had just been born. She's now 18. And we had moved in, uh, let's see, she was born in August. Pardon me, she was born in May. We moved in August to the mountains. And December 24th, our pipes froze. And we couldn't stay in the house. It was going to take about 10 days to get them fixed. The house was new and it wasn't properly insulated. And so we had some friends that had been asking us to come to Florida. So we got in the car went to Florida to, uh, do, uh, to visit and to do a couple of workshops while we were there. And we ended up being invited to a, uh, a center in Fort Lauderdale to teach a series of workshops there. And I did a six-week series, and the sixth week, the title of the workshop, they had asked me in advance to give them some titles, so the title of the workshop that I gave them was, Still Waiting for Your Ship to Come In? Which One Did You Send Out? was the title. Well, I was staying up in North Palm Beach and driving back and forth from North Palm Beach to Fort Lauderdale each Wednesday night to do this workshop. And it was the last Wednesday, the last uh, in the series. The next day, we were going to pack up and go back to North Georgia. Well, I'm on my way down there, and I've got about $102 in my pocket. I've got two kids. We're in South Florida. We're going to drive back and get set up to live again in North Georgia. $100 isn't going to go very far. So I'm driving down the interstate contemplating this, and I'd already asked the friends that I was staying with, you know, or had checked with them to see if I might borrow some money to get us back there and get us set up. And they said, well, let me check it out, and we'll see. So I'm driving down I-95, and I get to about Lantana Road, and I'm contemplating what I'm going to do with this workshop, still waiting for your ship to come in. And all of a sudden, I get this guidance that, Michael, you either believe in this stuff you teach or you don't. If you do, then it's time for a change. And what I want you to do is get off the interstate right now, find a bank, change that $100 in your pocket into a $100 bill, and at the workshop tonight, give it away. And I said, I beg your pardon. <laughs> and I got off the interstate, I went to a bank, got a $100 bill, Went to the, uh, to the workshop, did a piece of the workshop, and then did a, a process where I invited everybody to decide how much they were willing to give away. We talked about the idea of the law of return. You know, how much are you willing ten times, a thousand times, yay, a thousand re return. Everybody gets excited. Sure, I want a thousand return. Well, how much do you want? Oh, I want a million dollars. Okay, then get the thousand dollars out of your pocket and give it away. Oh, well, wait a minute now, let's, let's not go quite that far. I mean, yeah, faith is good, but, but let's be sensible about it. Okay, then how much are you willing to give away? And so I had people take out of their pocket whatever it was. Myself and one other person gave away a $100 bill. And what I did is I had people wrap the $100 or their, whatever they were going to give away up in their hands and just start to walk, got everybody out of their seats, had them walk around the room and I had them do, on a signal, an exchange. So they'd receive whatever the person that they were facing had in their hand and give them what was in the other. 
And then they'd walk around the room for another 30 or 40 seconds and I'd say, change. And they'd hand, without looking at it, they'd hand whatever was in their hand and receive from the other person. And do, we did that maybe a dozen times. Now, I go back to Fort, that's 18 years ago, I go back to Fort Lauderdale and I still hear about that exercise. It brought so much up for people. There were two people that gave away a $100 bill. You want to see people who are feeling guilt. The two people who got the $100 bills tried to force us to take them back. Well, this was just an exercise. We don't really keep this, right? No, no. The idea was to give away whatever you gave away, and that's what you got. Well, yeah, but I can't keep this. I've got... No. I mean, it was really pretty interesting. And I remember with clarity, I got back a $20 bill and it was like, okay, I said I'd trust it and I'm going to trust it. Well, I went back, drove back up to, uh, to North Palm Beach. Uh, the next morning we loaded the car, got the kids in the car, said our goodbyes. People say, oh, Michael, you've just gotten things started here. You can't leave. You've got no, we've got to go. I get in the car and for the first time in about 60,000 miles, I turn the key in the ignition and absolutely nothing happens. Not even a click, not a whisper. The car is totally dead. It's like, okay, I'll listen. We unpacked the car and we stayed. That week, the phone started to ring and I had a practice there where in that week I made about three times what I had ever earned in any week from the day I started doing this work, which had been about seven years by that point. And it's never dropped below that since. I know exactly the minute where I shifted my mind energy about abundance. And I invite you to consider where your mind energy is about your creative process. The same thing applies in the area of health. You know, I hear the person who says, well, Michael, I've been praying for health twice a day for 20 years. Oh, really? Well, let's look at your process. Tell me about it. Well, 10 minutes in the morning, 10 minutes at night. Okay, what do you do with the 2350 that's left over? Well, you know, uh, I spent a lot of time in the doctor's office. You know, I, I had this set of symptoms, and they didn't know what it was, and I went to the doctor, and they couldn't figure it out, and, and, and we worked on it. And, you know, just last week they figured out it was the ABC disease. I said, oh, really? Yeah, then what did you do? Well, you know, I went home and I got out the encyclopedia and I looked it up and, and you know, there were two or three symptoms I didn't have, but I've got them now. Oh, and then what did you do? Well, of course, I had to call my mother and let her know that, that they found out that I had the ABC disease and I called my sister and my aunt and my uncle and uh, that night I went to an organ recital. You know what an organ recital is? That's where a bunch of people get together to talk about who's had the most organs removed, who's had the, having the next organ removed. And, and you watch people when they do these organ recitals, and you can see where their mind energy and their identity is. How many people have you seen doing an organ recital, or maybe you've done it yourself? Have you ever done this? Yes, and, and they found out what it was, and it was the worst one the doctor had ever seen. Like, like it's their identity. Well, you can tell where that person's prayer is, where that person's mind energy is. Is it any wonder they never step into health? Folks, we, if we want to create abundance in the arena of health, we need know absolutely nothing about disease. Specialists die of their specialty. Heart specialists die of heart disease. Cancer specialists, a statistically significant number, die of cancer. We don't need to know anything about the cause of disease. We are creative beings. You know, they've identified a thing in the, uh, in the schools where they study disease processes, schools of psychology, they study abnormal psychology, medical schools and such, and they've identified what they call the second year syndrome. 
And the second year syndrome is what they've come to identify when students are studying a set of symptoms or diseases and by the second year they're all or many people are expressing the very diseases they've been studying. Now you'd think somebody would catch on that this has got something to do with the mind energy they're engaging in. That this is our creative process. And where you focus your mind is where your process will go. Focusing is a creative act. And it doesn't matter whether you focus on it because you love it or because you hate it. If your focus is there, the Master said it very clearly, let thine eye be single and thy body will be filled with light. Focus on one energy to the exclusion of all else and you will produce that very result in your life. And as you recognize that process, you have the opportunity to undo to remove, and in the ancient Aramaic language, the word forgive is the word that describes the undoing of the energies that do not belong within our system. Forgiveness isn't about letting others off the hook for what they've done to us. Forgiveness is about you and I owning our creative process and removing the energies from our system that do not belong there. And in the next hour, we'll look at an exercise for how to do that.